some dangerous large uh, carnivore out there. Yeah, I saw that bird pick a young deer off the bird and fly away. And uh, it was just about getting dark, and we started panicking, running down the bridge, not really having any clue of storing rocks in our vicinity, good-sized rocks. And uh, I stopped long enough to get a 357 out of my backpack and look back, and that's when I thought I saw one. Now we got we have done a lot of research in this area. 
spent a lot of time in this area and areas. So um, really looking forward to uh, you know having having uh, our guests on the show or teammates um, and uh, talking about it, discussing it. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, excited. I mean, obviously when when uh, we've spent a lot of time out in the area where these these sightings took place and and spent a lot of time with with uh, both Larry and, and Jess and so I mean for me it's like you know we've had a lot of stuff in in our research area that's audio and to me that's always the most open uh, to interpretation but when uh, we have two of our own team members that have had it, uh, daylight both of these took place. Uh, during the daytime sightings, uh, it just is, to me, it's, it kind of confirms that, that our suspicions uh, that that there's something to what we're looking for there in in the area, so. Yeah, yeah, I, I fully agree. And, you know, the funny, the thing you mentioned there about the daylight sightings is, of all the reports from a lot of the reports from the Tillamook Forest, uh, both online, um, many um, that we've taken and whatnot and discovered, have been daylight sightings. Uh, you know, for obvious reasons, I suppose. But you know, they have been daylight sightings. I don't know of too many. Um, I, I can only think of maybe one to two uh, evening to nighttime sight possible sightings. Uh, most of them seem to be during the day uh you know uh, you know there's been some early morning sightings uh midday sightings and uh you know kind of latter day sightings you know with with uh well with our guests you know uh, Jess and Larry uh, Larry's happened midday basically and um i believe Jess's was you know later on in the day but still interesting you know um, that they're daylight sightings and gives me a lot of hope and promise that uh, we can continue and maybe perhaps uh, uh, obtain some sort of uh, substantial evidence, you know, and whatnot with these sightings. Right, and that's uh, exciting to me. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's cool. So um, I know that uh, they're both uh, on the line waiting to uh, for us to bring them on, so... Uh, let's do that. I'm ready to to uh, grill these guys. <laughs> All right. Hey guys. Hey Larry and uh, Jess. Hey. 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 Larry, you there? <laughs> yeah. We are here. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us on Monster X tonight. And uh, like I said, we're we're pre-recording this for, uh, it will air on Valentine's Day, special sweetheart edition. So it's super sweet that we've got two of our own team members um, here to share their their encounters. Well, thanks um, for having us. I think Larry's having a bromance for Valentine's Day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so well, I'm um, but uh, so let's let's talk first. Um, it's been a while back uh, that uh, Jess, that you actually had the first sighting um, in in our research area. And uh, why don't you go ahead and, and tell our listeners 
uh, your story. I mean, it's pretty cool. You know, it, it is kind of cool, but I, with as much background information as I can kind of give, I'll do that. But at the end of the day, you know, without a lot of evidence, it, it is just a story. So um, it would have been the third weekend in September on a Sunday morning, um, last one more week of elk hunting season to go, and um, myself, um, my significant other Chris, and our two girls, and Larry had gone up to a remote spot in our area and um, had some interesting things happen the night before that just kind of make you go, hmm. And the next morning we were up in camp and we were hearing some elk calls. So Chris and Larry um, decided that they were going to go look for dinner. (laughs) And left camp, and I think they left camp about 8 o'clock in the morning. And, you know, they had been gone for a good hour um, when I heard Larry's diesel truck up along the ridge line. And, you know, the diesel noise carries a fair bit. So I kind of expected that maybe he was, they were either coming back or were pretty, fairly close to camp anyway. Um, and so when I heard the truck, I started scanning the hillside um, up where the road goes to kind of see if they were heading back into camp. And um, what initially caught my eye was up in the tree line, and I think we've estimated, I don't know, a football field. It was a pretty fair distance. Um, it right about 9.05 in the morning was um, something stepping out behind a tree. And my first honest to goodness thought was, oh, Larry's dumped Chris off to go flush elk out of the out of the tree line. So I was expecting what I was initially seeing coming out behind the tree from the shadows right on the borderline of light was to be Chris. And it took a couple steps down away from the tree. Um, and, you know, you could tell it was a, a man per se, an upright walking figure. And but it was still pretty dark. And then it stopped um, right at the edge of where the sunlight kind of caught it and then turned, looked directly down into camp and then started to traverse across the hillside. And at that point, I was like, wait a second, that's not Chris. I I mean, it was just, it was significantly larger in appearance than what Chris seemed to be and definitely didn't walk like Chris. Um, and so I watched it, I don't know, maybe take six, eight, ten steps, you know, um, go between 30 and 50 feet. It's kind of hard to estimate when you're down at the bottom of the hill. Um, And then it stopped and was right near a a tree and just was staring down at camp at me. And my impression is, you know, when you're looking at a deer and it looks back at you, you recognize that, you know, you're aware of it and it's aware of you. And there is no doubt that I was aware of it and it became very aware that I noticed it. And at that point, what it did is it stepped kind of behind into the side of a tree and grabbed a branch and pulled it down, kind of camouflage. And, um, you know, I mean, but I could still see it was there. And I continued to watch it as it continued to watch me. And then it proceeded to squat 
down, um, but I can still see kind of from the waist up. Um, and then it would kind of pull the branch up and down as it would peek through. And then eventually what it did is it stood up and took a couple of steps directly backwards and then just faded right back into the hillside. Um, you know, people always say, where's your camera? Why didn't you get a picture? Well, you know when you see things when you're trying to take pictures out of wildlife that you only have a second or so to try and capture it before it's gone. And cell phones don't come with this automatic, let's turn the camera on, especially for idiot cell phone users like myself. Um, you have to take your attention away from what you're looking at, pull it out, find the app, start the app, refind your object, point it, hope that it finds the same thing in the frame. So as all of this was taking place, both the girls were with me, and they both could see what I was talking about. And I literally pulled my phone out of my pocket because I was not going to stop looking at this thing. And I handed my phone to Haley and instructed her to turn the phone on because I, I didn't want to take my eyes off of it. So she turned the phone on and handed it back to me, and I started just pointing it at the hillside um, as best I could and just started snapping photos. And I would say... I mean, a fair estimate, the encounter probably took place over a five to seven minute period. It was not quick. It wasn't in any hurry. Um, I got a really good visualization of it, um, all the way from what it looked like from the front to the side profile to squatting. But at a fair enough distance that um, really minute details, uh, I wouldn't be able to give, like I couldn't couldn't say for sure what color its eyes are or, you know, something of that nature. But clear enough that I could tell the shape of the face and where the hair stopped and the facial features started, the color of its coat, um, the pattern of its gait. I mean, it was just really, really blew me away. Um, and within a few minutes of that happening, the guys returned to camp. That would have been Larry and Chris. And I was pretty much dumbfounded. I... Um, you know, I guess even doing research, you hope that you have a sighting. That's right. That's what we're there for. But at the end of the day, people like Peter Byrne have been doing this their entire lives and have yet to see it. So you're in this field with no expectation of ever seeing anything. And so that was not something I really was prepared for or expecting. And certainly not at 9 o'clock in the morning. And certainly not literally it coming to me. Um, so it was... It's taken a long time to kind of wrap my head around it and, you know, am I sure that's what it was? And, you know, kind of question because you go through all these different stages of disbelief and whatnot. And thankfully, you know, when the guys came back to camp, um, Larry was able to get me a little bit more focused. And then he and Chris went up to the hillside and we recreated what had happened to try and get a, a good reference for size and shape and distance. Um, and, you know, by the time we were done, it really, well, there's nothing definitive um, what we kind of estimate to have happened in the size really puts things in a very interesting perspective. So here I am, what, not even six months later, and it's still really, this is the first time I'm talking about it, yeah. of course, publicly. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, it's this amazing experience, but it, it's still a story, and it's something that, you know, I can never, 
tell people or have people believe necessarily you either do or you don't. Right. So, Just but for it's the, my story. For, it is your story. And, uh, no, thank you for sharing it here. And, uh, you know, you share it with us all. And we know you, Jess, uh, to be, you know, very honest and true to what you do and stuff. So, no, but but to come on a, a you know, a radio show and, and talk about it, I know it's uh, it's tough. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, there'll be people out there questioning you, which they should be, of course, but sure. still tough. But for the listening audience, uh, can you tell a couple things? Uh, one is, uh, you know, can you relate to the audience uh, the time of year? And can you talk a little bit more about the color? If you made out any sure. color, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's fall. It's still pretty warm out. Um, you know, cooler in the evening, probably 40, 40 degrees the night before. So <clears throat> what I consider comfortable, you know, for camping and hiking and especially for wildlife who have a coat because they're not, it's not hot anymore. It's starting to cool down. Um, and it's, hunting season, so there are a lot of, you know, weirdos running through the woods looking for dinner. Um, it's archery, remember that. No guns. That is true. It was archery. It was archery season. I should definitely, that's a good point. It was archery season, so there wasn't gunfire. Um, but still, lots of people, you know, driving through looking for dinner um, kind of thing. That's still happening. But, I mean, the coat definitely, Initially, when it was in the shadows, had a kind of a dark, muddy brown appearance. And in the shadows, if it didn't move and it had just stood by the tree, based on our estimated size, you would not even know it was there. It had that dark, bark appearance. So, you know, very dark, muddy, muddy brown, similar to when the ground or the earth is wet. Um, very camouflaged. But when it starts moving and the sun started to catch it and it came down to the edge of the of the tree line where it went from clear cut to trees and the, the way the light was shining on the hill, its coat had, when the sun hit it, a much, I don't want to say coppery undertone, maybe more the color of um, like a dark clay. Um, and you could definitely see that different, the difference in its body um, the shading of the coat was different. So, you know, just like when you see a bear or a deer walk, the coat shades a little bit as it goes over the different muscles and changes tones a little bit. And you could definitely see that when it walked. Um, there was, I mean, just even at a distance, it was just so unbelievably massive and clear how the light would reflect off of its coat as as it moved. And... Um, but just kind of that burnished red undertone to the color. And then, of course, when it stepped back into the shadows um, and the light came off of it, it was back to being that very dark, camouflaged, muddy brown where if it wasn't moving, you wouldn't you wouldn't even know it's there. And I truly say you wouldn't know. I mean, it just blended in like it was a stump. So it would have had to have drawn attention to itself for me to even recognize that it was there to begin with. Gotcha, gotcha, yeah. How was it, so, you, you know, you you touched upon this again, but, I mean, how how was um, this thing acting, you know? Uh, how was it acting? Uh, you know, you said it backed up, it, you know, it grabbed the branch, went up. I mean, did it seem to be nervous, in your opinion? Of course, you know, uh, you, you no. can't really judge everything, but, I mean, in your opinion, did it seem to be acting nervous, uh, caught off guard? Did it feel, com- I mean, did you think it felt comfortable? Did it oh, yeah. really I think mean, it was noticed? 
I mean, that had been noticed? Oh, he knew. I mean, I say he. And the reason I say that is, you know, I've spent years with livestock and handled primates and animals, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at something and say, that's a male or that's a female, even in very large animals like elephants. That's a girl, that's a boy. It was very, very masculine in appearance um, and very quiet and very dominant. And when I say dominant, not dominant aggressive, but this is my territory, I'm comfortable here, I'm doing my thing. I don't have any doubt that in my mind that it was probably already aware that we were down in camp. Um, And it probably didn't expect initially that I was going to notice it, and it just was happenstance that I was scanning the hillside because I'd heard Larry's decent truck um, just maybe two or three minutes prior to that. But it it saw pretty quick, pretty quickly within a few strides of it walking across the hillside. I mean, it stopped and looked over its shoulder and turned and, and faced me. And I mean, as much as I say you can make eye contact with something because I couldn't see its eyes specifically, there was no doubt that I was looking at it and it was looking directly at me and that there was mutual acknowledgement that, hey, I'm here, you're there, and vice versa. And it didn't change its behavior. It didn't get any more nervous, but I think it became more careful in terms of being so blatant about being seen. And that's where it took another couple steps, stepped behind the tree, and then pulled the branch down just to provide some camouflage. But it didn't stop it from wanting to have an an interaction, I guess, because it didn't just run, it didn't disappear. It just made itself less visible and put itself in a position where it could continue to watch me. So, you know, I'm not really sure if I was the one on display or if it was the one on display, but it was very intent in just watching, very interested in what what I was doing. And then it seemed like when it was done, it was done, and it just proceeded to quietly slip back into, you know, its environment. Um, But in watching it walk and present itself, you know, I think there's lots of times people can talk about misidentification. It's a bear, it's this, and certainly with a really fleeting catching something out of the corner of your eye, I would say that's definitely a high probability. But, you know, when I, I looked at my my um, phone when I first heard Larry's diesel, and so I'm absolutely certain of what time of the morning it was. And then after it left, and I looked down to see if I'd caught any images on my phone, it was a good six or seven minutes of time total um, that it elapsed. So it wasn't just a fleeting 10-second or 3-second interaction. It really took its time to watch us like we were at the zoo. Yeah, so I really, really have no idea how long this thing was there. <laughs> What's that? Right. It, it probably, it, it sounds like it may have come into the air because you guys were there. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Like, at the end of the day, we can speculate and say, well, you can you can say this or that, but how do you, how do you prove it? I can't prove anything, but my personal take, having spent as much time as I have handling animals and livestock in the woods, handling primates, they're keenly aware of their environment. And there are times animals don't mind being seen or they take a risk for whatever reason. But I, my opinion of the situation is it was very interesting in what we were doing, and I think it was simply coming in to a vantage point where it could watch us 
without being noticed, and I just happened to notice it. But it didn't take away its curiosity of what we were doing. And ironically, it waited to do so when the men had left camp. And all that we had left were two children and a female. And so the point that it chose to come and actually really spend time watching us was a time when, in my mind, any animal might feel less threatened because the two dominant men are not in camp anymore. And primates, and I guess this is how I equate some of the behavior I see, um, have a very, very much a pecking order between the, you know, the sexes, and in how they and how they interact. And when you have a dominant protective male, they will keep other males away, or their females won't be approached unless that male is away, unless they want to have an altercation. And so, to me, it was very, a very thought out interaction. Like, hey. The guys are gone. This is a good time for me just to swing down and kind of see what's going on without without any risk. That's kind of that's my you know, my thought on it, whether or not that's just a bunch of yes, I mean I, I, I don't know. That's just my take on it from having you know, having the experience and equating it to what and how other animals behave. So been, right or wrong, I don't know. Some. You mentioned that the because you guys had stayed there, camped in that location the previous night, and you mentioned Correct. that there had been some interesting activity uh, the night before. What what are you referring to? Well, I I know we had audio recorders out, um, and I do believe Larry has audio. You'll have to ask him about that. But the night before, um, we put the kids to bed. And it was probably about 11 o'clock around the campfire, um, or the non-campfire, I should say. And uh, we started getting um, just some interesting movement around camp. Um, and then we started hearing some kind of, I think, if I remember correctly, some low-tone grunts. And so I had said, okay, hey, let's make a long-distance call. You know, Chris is still pretty new to this, and so as we were going, teaching them some of the different, you know, different ways we might, you know, encourage an interaction, whether it's howling or something or whatever. And so I did a long-distance call, um, actually towards the hillside where we ended up seeing it, which is ironic. Um, And I would say within 15 or 20 seconds of doing that, um, I got a very loud wood knock back. Um, And... I can't. I, you'd have to listen to the audio for me to remember, and I, I wrote it down in, you know, what order things went in terms of calls and something. But then I went and I made a wood knock, and then I got another wood knock from a different location on the hillside that were far enough apart to was more than one something knocking back at you. Um, and then... One of the things we were talking about is how primates or gorillas, you know, they make kind of a a percussion noise with their hands on their muscles, and it makes a very deep, low-toned um, kind of resonant noise. And so I'm like, I'm going to go ahead and do that to show you another way that we've used to try and interact. And so I did that. And as soon as I did that, from the opposite direction behind camp, we started getting kind of an odd low-tone growl, kind of a grumble. Um, so, I mean, it just ended up being 
an active night. We didn't have flur, unfortunately, or anything like that to really um, get much. But I kind of threw a little bit out there, a little bit of everything the night prior, just in teaching Chris kind of how we do things or different ways that we can approach it. And it was more of a camping-type trip than it was a let's-go-squatching trip. And, of course, you know, let's-go-hunting trip. Um, And it just ended up having, you know, (laughs) having interesting results. But prior, we were getting direct responses for the things that we were doing. Um, And we had some really, we have, I know Larry has recordings of knocks, um, the the resulting knocks, because they were pretty dang loud. Um, and I don't know if you remember if he caught the growls or not. I don't, I don't know. You'd have to ask him. I don't think but, I caught the growls. Yeah, it was really low. It was one of those tones that you feel almost more than you hear. So, yeah, it was pretty It was pretty exciting. I mean, you know, but especially to snowy, see I mean, the same it, direction. And you weren't, I mean, nothing prepares you for having uh, a sighting. Um, I'm still waiting for my first one, uh, so I'm in the low percentage on this on this show right now. So, um, well, just keep you then, know keep doing what you're doing. Be interesting. <laughs> right. <laughs> and we've had other. I mean, we've had a lot of interesting um, activity. One of my most um, interesting uh, encounter of uh, weird activity in our research area was. With one was with you, Jess, and one was with Larry. And, and right. uh, for those have, who haven't heard the story, Jess and I were up there one night, and uh, of course we were running audio recorder, and and uh, it was just about midnight, and there was a loud crash, like directly behind where Jess was sitting, and. Uh, she flew across uh, our fire, campfire, and uh, uh, I think I proceeded to laugh at that point. But um, the yeah, next I day just we actually caught found... myself on fire. <laughs> <laughs> roll, drop and roll. But uh, pretty much the next day we found a uh, good-sized rock, about I, I'd say about softball size, um, about two feet behind where. You'd been sitting, right? One of the most fast, and that in itself is pretty interesting. We heard some, you know, movement in the brush and stuff um, throughout the evening. But when I went back and listened to the audio recording, the interesting thing about it was uh, Jess was telling a story about how she when she had worked with primates, and um, immediately, and I mean like immediately, uh, that it can't be coincidence. When she was te- in the p- part of the story, she made an agitated chips chimp sound. Can you do do, do that for us? Just if <laughs> <laughs> you want me to start you know. making. <laughs> but, but oh was, my goodness! You know, I would blow your listeners' ears out. <laughs> but but immediately after she made that agitated chimp sound was when the crash occurred, and I I didn't realize that at the time, but when I went back into listen to the recording, I'm like, wow, that that is pretty interesting. So, well, And the other thing that you got that neither of us, that for me was just like, whoa, wait a second. 
besides the timing of it, was the fact that I don't know if we just were too busy laughing and having a good time at that point to hear the fact that not only was something moving up there, but there were grunts made right prior to that rock being thrown. And you could hear them. They were very, very deep. And there were two or two or three of them. And, you know, so to hear that, the movement, me make that noise, and apparently I would say I irritated something, definitely let me know it didn't appreciate that vocalization. And it certainly that rock could have nailed me um, and caused some damage. So I think it was more of a, hey, I, I don't like that. But well, the interesting me, thing is that you, you actually saw uh, some leaves moving where it looked like something had come through at the time, too. Yeah, so yeah you was, could I mean, see, it was more you could than see one. a branch where it come through. Yeah. Right. But I, I still, you know, being pragmatic, I don't, I, I don't tell people that I, you know, Bigfoot threw a rock at us because I did not want no. to see a Bigfoot. And, uh, I mean, that's, that's our best. And a, a lot of times that's what you end up with is your best guess of what what happened. So it's just right. one of those really interesting uh, encounters that have happened in this area. We've had a lot of, like I said, a lot of different things happen. So Right. I mean, I would certainly never say that Bigfoot threw a rock at me. Did I have something launch at me, yeah, I've got it sitting in my closet in the bag. Um, can we say that we have audio that goes with it that's um, rather interesting and supportive of something unusual happening? Sure. But even the stuff that we had in, happen in camp the night prior, you know, it's always about everything else you can rule out first. You know, my go-to answer isn't it's a Bigfoot, it's a Sasquatch, um, junior threw a rock at me, I irritated it. Because you don't know. You have to rule absolutely everything else out first. Because despite whether you believe or not, I mean, there's a very scientific approach that has to happen and you have to rule absolutely everything out and then start collecting evidence to be able to start to consider what possibilities of what it actually is. And so... Yeah. For me, there's been no smoking gun that we really have. We have some interesting evidence. We have a lot of audio. Um, we have some great tracks. Um, we've had some trackways that wouldn't mold that we have great pictures of. Um, you know, we haven't gotten any DNA. I know other groups have. But for me, the sighting, you know, takes you from being a skeptic to, okay, yeah, there really is something there what do we, A, do to prove its existence and, B, also safeguard it from um, people who might want to take advantage of it? Yeah, Jess, I was going to say, using science. One, of the, one of the really the interesting things for me about the area that you had uh, your encounter is that Larry and I had been out uh, traveling around, and when, uh, we, we accidentally discovered this, this area, and uh, when we came upon it, we're like, man, this is a really cool area. It's... it's uh, it just it's, it seems like something's going on here. I mean, it just you just got a good feeling being in this area. It seemed uh, an area where there'd be a lot of wildlife, uh, mm -hmm. it, uh, and so it's really unique in a lot of aspects for me personally. And I think Larry and I agreed that oh man, we got to come out here and uh, this is an area we should do some more research in. And uh, it just had a lot going for it. Uh, I mean, was when when you went out there originally? I mean, was there anything that stuck out to you? 
because for me, like I said, it just seemed very, it seemed like a really nice area to, to be doing some research in that is something like a Sasquatch. Yeah, feel so watching. You know, I well, guess so. Whatever. Yeah. But <laughs> I mean, anytime, anytime you're trying to look at a habitat for the possibility of being able to sustain wildlife, especially sizable wildlife, there's things you're going to have to consider. And if you go into it with the preconceived notion that you have a large bipedal something, okay, is it a relic hominid? Is it a hybrid? I mean, there's so many theories, frankly. We just don't know. But you're going to say, okay, sizable animal that potentially has a lot of coat um, and it's going to need a lot of calories. You know, so what kind of climate is it going to need? Um, what kind of food source, water source, you know, protection from the elements? I mean, those are all things that you're going to think of, just like if you're going to say, okay, I want to go elk hunting. I'm certainly not going to go out to the desert where there's no water and no forage and no shelter. I mean, you're not going to get what you necessarily want there. So my very first impression, of course, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, so I was already familiar with the areas. You've got a tremendous amount of wildlife, um, big and small, access to water everywhere. Um, you have lots of lots of coverage, um, you know, trees with some a lot of, you know, intermittent open clear-cut areas. And even though you're still fairly close to... Um, you know, where a lot of people are coming in and out of, you still have thousands and thousands of acres of forest. And forest that connects to other forests, that connects to other wildlife areas. So it's not like when you talk about, you know, just the um, Tillamook area, Tillamook Forest area. It, it's connected to the coastal range and mass. And from there, there's bits of, you know, wooded areas that connect you all the way to Forest Park and certainly going the other way that take you all the way to wrap around the other side of Mount Hood. So really you're talking about a massive amount of area that interconnects to other similar, you know, similar areas with similar conditions. And yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that there's, whether you're, you know, a carnivore or an omnivore, there's ample food sources for something of significant size to be able to feed itself and be able to live relatively um, anonymously. It's big, it's dark, and let's face it, it's, you know, the world champion of hide-and-seek. So it's adapted to an environment that we're not. So we go out there and probably make giant asses of ourselves as we tromp through the woods and... What I can tell you from my experience in watching what I saw happen, you know, this very large animal walked very effortlessly across a very steep hillside and made it look like it was, you know, daisy cutting on a nice paved trail. And then I sent Chris and Larry up there, and here you have two six-foot-tall men who look like a bunch of Goombas falling all over the hillside, tripping over logs, <laughs> over the dense underbrush. And, you know, these are both men who are experienced in the outdoors. But, I mean, I was actually down there laughing. I'm like, oh, my God, they look like idiots up there. Here they're, like, tripping over logs. They, you know, they can't walk without stumbling or tripping or having to lean on something. So for them to go up there and, and try and even walk the hillside wasn't, I mean, no, there was no walking. There was falling and climbing. 
but what I saw just walked like it was no big deal. And Larry and Chris didn't have the ability to step over, you know, all the natural debris that this thing did. And so Can I add something to this? (laughs) Poor Larry. (laughs) Go ahead, Larry. Larry. (laughs) Since I was the one who was tripping and falling over everything up there, (laughs) Jess instructed, uh, um, we had walkie-talkies, and she was looking at us, and, of course, we couldn't stand up to save our lives walking through this stuff. So she instructed us to go to this um, maple tree and squat down. So we squat down. She says, reach up and pull that branch. It's five feet above us. We couldn't pull that branch. And she said that's what that thing did, was pulled that branch down. Just wanted to add that because there was no way we could grab that branch from our no, squatting I mean, it- position. Yeah, when we really compared, I put I put Chris and Larry um, right in the spot, the exact spot that had been standing. It's really dense underbrush. They did find some heel impressions where something they said appeared of size to be pushing stuff down that seemed nothing castable. But with them squatting down and their hand over their head, they couldn't even come close to reaching the branch that just fell right above this thing's head when it was squatting. And then, I mean, it was just the branch was right there for it to grab it and pull itself down. So then I'm like, okay, you two stand up. Okay, so they stood up. And I'm like, stand next to each other. And those two standing next to each other were still not as wide as what I was able to reference. And then, you know, putting their hands above their head, because I had that lovely branch there that gave me a really good indication of its height, both squatting as well as standing. And we came to the rough estimation that it was right shy of eight feet. And I'm trying to remember between the two, I mean, 40-some inches across chest-wise. I mean, it was just, you know, from point of shoulder, it was huge. And it made them look really small. And I didn't realize how small those two looked until they actually were in the same spot. And then it just, for me, made me realize all the more how significantly massive what I saw actually was. Because when you put a, a standard-sized man in the same position, it just, they were almost hard to see. I mean, they were dwarfed. And I had no trouble seeing, you know, details on muscle movement and stuff. And so, I mean, it really puts it in a whole different perspective when you actually can put a man in that same spot and measure and compare and... They look like kids. I mean, like toddlers, you know, in comparison to what I saw. Well, Larry, can you can you give us a little bit of like what what is the ground like? There were there were there. Did you find any impressions or any other? Oh, it was uh, evidence. Well, it's what they did. What it was is a was a uh, logged off area, say about five years ago, and up in this area here, what they do is they slash it take out the harvestable timber and leave everything else behind and let the forest grow up in between. It's a state law to plant trees within one year after doing a clear cut, so there's little tiny trees. But the natural uh, trees like alders and maples and stuff like start coming in, salau, um, all the smaller vegetation, low-growth vegetation starts growing in there. And after a while, you can't see what's on the ground, and so you've got what? Maybe a foot and a half worth of uh, of uh, slash all over the place, branches, everything, and then low-growing salau in there, and 
when you're walking around, you don't see this. So you're sinking up, well, maybe up to your knees in some points. Mm-hmm. And then when you find, then when you walk along, you'll see where there's ground you could actually walk on. Up behind from where that maple tree was, I'd say about 20 yards, is a trail that goes all the way on down to to another road. So I'm guessing that's where that thing just took off, and, and there would be no way for her to see it because it was uphill, and then the trail was like 12 feet down, and it just takes off. Very good. So I mean, pretty nasty that's... terrain to walk in. Right. So it, it, it's true that there, there was an opportunity to do some, go up into the area and actually um, do some care, comparison sizing and, and uh with you know it that that is makes I mean you get down to where you know it it's one thing or another you know it it's something on two legs that walked through in a way that uh, any known animal it wouldn't be a bear obviously it wasn't a person so you're kind of left no. with by process of elimination you know it's some unknown animal whatever it is yeah. so. well, exactly the thing is is I mean I'm not I'm gonna, I'm calling it a bigfoot I mean what should we call it? I don't know. You know, it hasn't been categorized and classified yet. And but what what I can tell you is that there is nothing wildlife in that area that can even remotely come close to to what I saw in terms of size. And you know, in terms of how it walked, I mean, you could kind of replicate how it walked, but in its lower arms were so long, it hung down, you know, almost to its knees, and it walked with a, a forward-tilted gait. Um, and, I mean, it's the quint- quintessential paddy walk. I mean, that's the only way I can describe it because I watched it walk for a good length of time both towards me and then across the hillside. If I were to tell somebody, if you want to know how it walks, go watch the Patterson-Gimlin film. That's how it walked. Um but it was much more masculine looking than what, you know, is in that film. I mean, it definitely, it's it's back and it's chest and it's shoulders were significantly more broad and muscled. Um, it was just huge. And so, you know, tell me if that could be a bear or, yeah. yeah. You Jess, know. did you ever I, I mean, feel I am compelled... totally open to ideas. <laughs> yeah. But did you ever feel, com- at the time, I mean, Anything? Did you feel like running towards this thing and, and trying to? I mean, obviously, we weren't prepared to, uh, you know, in the moment capture it on video or picture or anything. But did you ever felt like you wanted to go towards it, or did you feel like, you know, I mean, where were you in your mind when you saw this thing? Honestly, my first thing is, okay, what is Chris doing up there? Just <laughs> secondly, like, oh, that is <laughs> no, that is not Chris. Oh my God. I mean, I mean, it just when I saw it start to walk, you know, across the hillside, it was instantly. There, am I really actually seeing this? I mean, am I actually getting to watch this thing walk across the hillside, and not just one or two strides, but enough to really see how this thing is moving? And you know, my thing was, I can't take my eyes off of it. It's too far and too steep a terrain. I already knew there's no point. You're not going to run towards it. I didn't feel threatened. His behavior wasn't intimidating or threatening. And it was literally this kind of this moment of, holy crap, he's just as interested <laughs> in what I'm doing as I am and what he's doing. And in the back of my mind, I mean, I kept thinking, 
oh my gosh, what, is he going to just disappear? No, he he just he. I'm going to keep calling it a he. Was as interested in watching what I was doing is vice versa. I mean, I just I still sometimes can't even really find the right words for it because I literally almost felt like I was the one in the fishbowl and that I was the one being watched instead of vice versa. And so I wasn't afraid. I mean, I wasn't, maybe if, you know, he was waving his arms and screaming or whatever, I don't know, then I, I might have felt more intimidated. But there was still enough distance that I just wasn't worried about it. And there was no sense of urgency that I needed to move the kids or I needed to run to it. It was more of, we're just going to watch this play out. I'm not going to take my eyes off of it. The minute I do, I might not get a chance to find it or, you know, see where it went. So there was actually a point near the end where I sat back down in my chair and continued to watch it as it continued to watch me. I mean, that's how long the interaction went. It was, okay, I'm going to go ahead and the chair was right behind me, so I just sat down and I could still see it. And when it was done doing what it wanted to do, it stepped away. And, you know, ironically, like I said, it was only maybe two or three minutes later that the guys actually came back around the corner um, and back into camp. And so I don't know if that maybe what preempted the end of it watching was their return to camp um, because they came from the same above where it was watching. So the road up there would have taken it back behind and around it and, and then in front of it and then back into camp. So, you know, maybe that's why the interaction ended. I don't really know, but... My only sense of urgency was that I would be really stupid to take my eyes off of it. Mm-hmm. And and that nothing else, my desire to get good photos of it or good video, I didn't have anything that could have really gotten it at that distance and not been pixelated, was I could choose to try and look for, you know, get evidence or just to enjoy, as much as you can use that term, the moment and just participate in what was happening. And right. so that was how, really what my focus was. How were the uh how were the kids, you know, you know, how were the kids acting? Uh, you know, they had seen something. So, I mean, what was their response? Uh, you know, I, I'm very curious about that. I mean, I I already know, but I guess I, mean, I, I would Grace assume the like, audience nah. would be interested in that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I have my 9-year-old who we've been calling Squatch Bait for what, 3 years. Yeah. Um, and, you know, throwing rocks at her in the pet and teasing her. Oh, the Sasquatch is her interested in you, Gracie. But she was like, nah, no way. It's in the place. Shut up, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> really, it, none of the kids were afraid. I think they were just absolutely like, you've got to be kidding me. No. You can see it. What's in the bushes? And And then Haley, who was trying to do my camera, was like, oh, my gosh, it's standing right there. Like, yes, it is, but it's not moving. No, it's right there. And I mean, then you know, then Grace actually came around in front of me because when it squatted, it was more difficult for her to see. But she came around, and you know, I said, "Okay, Grace, follow this tree up, do this, this, and this." And she's like, "It's right there." <laughs> and they were just absolutely just. Kind of, they weren't scared at all, but I mean, I think they were just incredulous that seriously, this thing is right there and it's watching us. And I don't think for any moment in time did they even feel the need to be afraid. 
or scared. I just think they were like me. You've got to be kidding me. All I wanted to do was make some coffee, sit down by the fire, wait for the guys to come back and, you know, make breakfast. And now here I am, you know, inviting Sasquatch to breakfast. Um, but, no, it was just they probably, very they had no incredulous. Reason to be scared because they probably had no reason to be scared because they could both outrun you. You know, I mean, let's face it. If it's truly as big and as strong as it is, and if it really made Larry and Chris look as idiotic as it did when I compare how it walked today, there is no amount of anything that you're going to do to outrun it, outhide it. I mean, it's just very well adapted for its an environment, and we are a visitor to its to its home, basically. Um, and I mean, if it really wanted to hurt you, that's what it's going to do. I think it's probably more interested in maintaining, um, you know, maintaining its its privacy and its secrecy because that's what it needs to survive. And that would be my personal opinion. That's not anywhere based in fact. I just yeah. think it, that's what that's what it's done, you know. And I thought about why why are we continuing to have more sightings? And I mean, I have my own little theory on that. Um, and I kind of think that maybe we'll continue to see more. And I think it's potentially related to population growth. But that's just a theory. So no way to prove it. Mm-hmm. Jess, has this changed you? Uh, your opinion, or I mean, going you know not having a sighting before. Uh, experiences, yes, uh, you know, possible experiences, but not necessarily an encounter or sighting. Has this changed you, and has it? I mean, what's it done for you and your research, personally? I think it's. it's I mean, I think it's done a couple things. To me, you know, I don't feel like I have to prove that it's there. Um, I know that there's something there. I I have, you know, my own ideas of what it might be. But there, for me, there's no rush to try and prove its existence. I'm, in my mind, there's no more skeptic. Um, it's, it is. It, it just simply it is. Um, really, now the question for me is, what is it, and what do we do to prove its existence? And I very much know that the way we're going to do that is using science and methodology, and um, you know that that type of thing. And so I think it's really super, super important that I don't let that cloud the methodology behind what we need to do. But it also, you know, makes me say, okay, there is something there. We do, we or I would like to prove its existence. Um, But also doing it in a way that we don't disrupt, in my mind, its habitat. You know, I don't want to encourage more people to go hunting for it or to kill it. And certainly there's the camps that are pro-kill and not, and I fall into the, um, if we find a dead body, that's great, but I have no desire to ever see one prove its existence. It already knows it exists, so, you know, I'm just, I'm not okay with the idea of taking a life just to say, hey, look, it's real. Um, so it makes it more challenging to to obtain a specimen knowing what the odds are to find you know, a dead Bigfoot body. I mean, that's just not, the odds are so far stacked against you, it's ridiculous. Um, And so I'm fine with with taking time. If it takes 50 years or not in my lifetime, I'm actually okay with that because I want to make sure when it does happen that it doesn't become a free-for-all for for Bigfoot hunting. So, you know, that's kind of my thought. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Montez, thank thank you for sharing your story here with uh, the Monstrex. Like I said, it, it, uh, we've had some other uh, interesting, I mean, there's been some other visual encounters, but um, that one was the first in our group that was um, a daylight you know, uh, encounter. So, right. Uh, and I, I know it was was a, a shock to you, and uh, and I know that it, it, it's taken you a while to to process and and uh, be willing to share it. So we appreciate it. No worries. You know, I I have you guys to kind of bounce it bounce it off of because it is still really incredulous, and you know, I still ponder about it and think about it and go, gosh, that that really has happened. Um, because it just still seems so um, incredulous. I mean, that's just not something you're really. It does. It, it just completely changes how I think how you you view the woods around you. <laughs> um, but you know, um, Larry's got some interesting stuff to talk about, and um, I think it just kind of mirrors a lot of our experiences out there that there's something there. Speaking of Larry, I'm- Mr. Turner. How are you this evening? Good. Good. So, so this last Been weekend, doodling. Um, yeah, Larry <laughs> But also, I mean, if, uh, I got a phone call and I had not listened to my messages for a day, day and a half, and I, when I got around to doing it, um, I had a phone call from from our friend Larry and. Why don't you tell me the nature of that phone call? Why did you? Why were you bothering? What? Why was I bothering you on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon? Yeah. Well, I was taking a nap. <laughs> you were taking a nap. <laughs> oh. You know, could have been. Oh, okay. Well, there it was. Now, what I did is uh, Saturday was a uh, me day, so I went and I hit the woods and. Went out towards the Great Pacific uh, Coast Range, and uh, it was probably about 60 miles from our research area. And I found a herd of elk, and I videoed them, and watched them, and kind of just took in nature, and decided I'm going to go to our research area. I like to go out there and just be alone and write. And just so I started up, but got over there about an hour and a half later. Got to our research area and I just started a fire and I was just sitting there writing and uh, you know enjoying the peace and quiet and decided I was like I'm hungry. I was about twelve, I guess. And I said I'm gonna go home and get something to eat. So, um, so when I hit the logging road, Shane could attest to this. I'm not driving slow. I'm driving it like I own the road. So say thirty-five, forty, and about I don't know. Five, seven minutes later, I'm, I'm coming up to this area I really like. And I'm kind of looking at it, and there's just got a little tiny crest on the hill. And I see this guy crossing the road. I so, was he? Cro-? I've never seen a guy cross the road that way before, basically going south. I was like, what is going on? Why is he all wearing black? Then I focused in on its head going, well, why is he wearing a ski mask? And then uh, I'm kind of going, nah. And I I was doubting myself for a second until I realized there was nobody else around, and that thing went straight off over the side. So I'm thinking that wasn't a guy. It was too big, way big. So 
uh, say maybe five or six seconds after I passed it, or maybe even sooner, I'm uh, slamming on the brakes. And of course, if you slam on the brakes on gravel, it's like ice. So I was trying to get control of my truck. Finally got control of it, spun it back around, went and parked it kind of in the proximate area where this thing went in. I will preface that I have a torn calf muscle in two places vertically. I jumped out of my truck, went down and noticed there was a trail there. I didn't even know there was a trail here. It's a hiking trail, so I, I was going, I'm going to go catch up to that guy. So I ran down this trail as fast as I could for a few minutes, and I figured I'd overtake that guy real easy if he was just hiking. Found myself alone. I was going, you got to be kidding me. That wasn't a guy. So then I did a zigzag pattern trying to look around for this thing for 45 minutes. I couldn't find it. I did find some, you know, some crushed ground, but there's nothing discernible because it's just real forgiving in that area. So I was looking around, and I just like, well, I got to tell somebody. So I drove out, <laughs> and as soon as I got cell coverage, I called Shane, strike one. <laughs> I called Gunner, strike two. So I called Shane again. He answered the phone, and uh, he got a rather exaggerated Larry <laughs> that he's not heard very often. <laughs> the least. <laughs> <laughs> he was... Uh, so he, I regurgitated my my uh, story to him, and what really stuck out of my mind um, when I when I saw this thing was besides the mass, you know how big it was, because Gunner looked like an ant cross on the road compared to what this thing was. But because we went up the what was that yesterday, guys? Yeah. We, yes. Yeah. So yeah. So this was on your your sighting was on Saturday, right? Yeah, twelve right. fifteen p.m. Right. The sun was right. probably sitting at my two and a half to three o'clock. So and then pretty bright. So we were able to yeah. to get up there fairly soon after. I mean, Shane couldn't make it. I think he was uh, in Redmond, Oregon at the time. So. Yeah, Roseburg. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of out of the slack and down Roseburg when it should have been up here. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm driving back from San Diego. <laughs> Relax. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so but, uh, I mean, yeah, initial, you know. what what I one of the things that I find really fascinating about the whole like the mental aspect of of here here you have someone who is a Bigfoot researcher and has spent a lot of time in the woods and has had other strange things happen. Um, it, but but your mind does not immediately go to to I'm looking at a Bigfoot. Even though I mean, it, you know, you you got there eventually, but but the interesting thing, one of the interesting things is that you know we have a, our brains tend to take what we're seeing and try to put it in the box of something that we already know. And so you saw something on two legs, you know, upright on two legs, and um, crossing the road, and your immediate you put it in the human box. Yeah, you know what? Uh, it was really weird because I was arguing with myself. Is the thing was jet black, just jet black, as black as a black bear. With the you know, and as a, you know, the sun would peek through the overcast, you could actually see the sheen in the in the uh, hair. And I just kept on going, "Why is that guy wearing a ski mask? And look at his nose, how dark it is." <laughs> yeah, so I was putting it in a human form, and 
arguing with myself, nah, I couldn't be. I'm not looking for a Bigfoot or Sasquatch. I'm driving home. <laughs> and, yeah, you really, I mean, you weren't in, you weren't really out Bigfooting. You just were out enjoying the forest, and you happened to be in the area or, or researching yep. because one of your favorite yep. places. But, so, you had, I mean, the way that you described it, um, that it crossed the road in, in two, maybe three steps. Yes, two or three steps. And then as and, it uh, as it crossed, just as it stepped over or down the bank into the woods, it just kind of leaned and looked at me and stepped off. And that so got just turned, burned in my mind. So it turned its head in your direction and gave you a... Give me the look. Yep. Give me the look. Like, what are you doing here? So, and, and we were, over so, there. We so, I mean, part of the process is, you know, you go back to the area and you try to recreate them. And one of the the process yesterday was um, we had to estimate. I mean, you have to allow for some degree of of error in that when you're driving down the road and you're not expecting to see something, you know, of that nature, and you're driving along at 35, 40 mile an hour, you you know, you're not you're not really noting your speed, so you have to open things up to a range because we couldn't really even determine exactly where it. We we could tell from point this point to this point is some is probably where it it entered the woods. And right, and uh, estimated you know how much time we did a little bit of uh, recreation. Uh, Shane and I played Bobo, uh, and and that gave you a context of of size versus our size. The other deal was so, is, is uh, how the proximity of how close I was to it, uh, the first time. I was like you know when I mentioned yardage, but how do you calculate yardage when you're going that fast? And we got it down to about, you know. Right, because there was an area that you were actually looking off the road in, at, a, at a water source and and uh, then looked back onto the road, and that's when you saw yeah. this thing crossing the road. And initially yep, when you it saw it, was it, when you initially, I mean, how long did the entire uh, encounter last? Oh, besides me, well, the original sighting was probably no more than three seconds. I mean, you're talking, like I said, it, it maybe it took three steps. I didn't see the first one. And all I saw was one step and two, and it looked at me. It might have paused and then went straight down. So it was pretty fleeting. I'm pretty fast, but it was, you know, when I saw it in the middle of the road, it was. It was pretty dang big, <laughs> you know. It's just it's a why you know the whole thing I was having a problem with is I've never seen anybody, and you know there's people all over the place. There's you know these are trail there's trails, but I've never seen anybody go across that that way before. And then the and sheer a, size of this thing. And there there is an established walking trail, hiking trail down there, but that's uh, it. When where where this thing entered the the woods would not it wasn't entering the the actual trail it was 
there'd be no reason for a person to walk down the hillside, actually, because there's there's a clear trail very close. Exactly. And, you know, exactly. it needs to be noted that the hillside right there is not exactly friendly terrain. I mean, you know, we tend to take the path of least resistance, and when you have a walking trail right there that's well-groomed, you don't go down a hillside that's steep with that much debris. I mean, it just... Not unless unless you don't want it... One thing I want to preface is on that... Is a, uh, one one thing I want to preface on that trail is that it was it rained the day before, and it was soup. And if it went down the any, you know anybody would have went down that trail, I would have seen all sorts of tracks. And all I found that day was just a pair of dog tracks. So I was like, huh. except for my running tracks, but that's it. So yeah, it was. Uh, but the whole thing lasted a very short period of time, and uh, yeah. we. You know, we got some idea that it was substantially, and and that's the thing is you have to talk in what you can actually uh, uh, what you can actually determine, and all we could determine that it was much larger than than uh, either Shane or I or Shane, and much not only more girthy, um, but but also much taller. Yeah, and the other thing I saw when it was walking across the road was hair, the hair hanging off the arms as well, you know, a couple inches or so. Um, and this thing was jet black, as black as a black bear. So, Larry, what what do you think that you saw? I have no doubt what I saw. I think I saw a Bigfoot. There's no doubt. I think it's hard because when you spend so much time in the woods, you know, you get, you're get you so familiar with wildlife and how they behave and how they move, um, even what they smell like, um, that the more time you're out there, it becomes harder and harder to dismiss something that's unusual or that doesn't fit into the box. Yeah, and it one becomes thing harder got... to dismiss it. Right, but one thing you know, your folks got to know is I hunt this area, deer, elk, and bear. And I've been point-blank range to a, to a bear and kicked him out of the way because it wasn't bear season yet. You know, the black bear will just run off. And I've only seen one stand, and there's a huge difference between uh, uh, that mm-hmm. and what I saw. And that's it, so you're, you're not, not – you're you're, you're – very experienced in in the outdoors, and you've had other. Yes, I mean, our our research, this research area, came out of an encounter that that you with uh, that your daughter had that that uh, um, you pursued, um, and, and uh, mm-hmm. stayed. You know, you continued to go to the same area for uh, a good year before. I, I had the opportunity to meet you, and we we started working together, and and uh, it was uh, and and there had been ongoing uh, activity during the time that you were continued to go back to the same area. Yeah, you know, and I, I've uh, this area I've been hunting since, or it actually been in. Camping around, if you will, since 
1981. So I know it pretty well. And seeing all the indigenous animals of the area. Yeah, but we also see the thing is, this area, we've been researching this for a number of years. Uh, yes, we have. Yes, a number of years. Uh, Larry, longer than I or Gunner or Jess um, and some of our other team members. Uh, what gets me when, when, when I hear about the, you know, and, and talk to you guys about these encounters is. This is re- relatively a short period of time that you've had these encounters uh, or sightings. You know, we're talking like less than six months. Um, that is is something that I look to go. Okay, well, why in the last you know period of time we've been doing this research over a number of years? We've got some really cool recordings, neat recordings. Uh, we've experienced some really unique stuff with without sightings. You know, we we we've taken in reports of sightings from other individuals, but not within our group. We're talking about outsiders, uh people just traveling around or hiking or whatnot. But yet you and Jess in the group have had sightings and that to me within a short period of time tells me, okay, I gotta ask myself, what's going on here? Why now? And uh what are we doing, right or wrong? You know, and so I mean, Larry, what's your opinion on that? It's kind of a difficult thing to pin down what we're doing right or wrong. Um, you ever give it a thought? Timing's everything. <laughs> um, being at the right place at the right time. Yeah. One thing I I I know in my gut is that when well, you guys know this. When whenever we go to our research area, it is, isn't long. If I if I I pretty much will tell you guys we're going to have action tonight. We have action, you know, because like, kind of, it's like they're here. There's a couple telltale signs. Uh, a lot of times it's so dead quiet, not even the birds are singing or, you know, anything. It's just dead. Next thing you know, we got re- our recorders are picking up all sorts of stuff. We're hearing all sorts of stuff, um, you know. Uh, knocks go right neck right in the campground when somebody's in a coma right across from somebody won't mention his name <laughs> but you know all sorts of things like that um, there's activity you know going off in two different directions on the compass we've been trying to focus on and I think it has a lot to do um with our uh, methodology with regards to maybe we need to do some more splitting up. That's what I'm kind of thinking about, you know, to mm-hmm. increase our odds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about two different areas where the sightings occurred. Um, um, you know, they're 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 close oh, as really? birds fly, you know, uh, right. but not close by hiking, <laughs> you know. Uh, they, no. there's, there's a distance in between them, uh, but yet sightings have occurred there and so you know these are things that i like to think about and i know we're we're thinking about um and there's many ideas and, and opinions as to why um and you know we truly don't know but yet they did occur uh but one of like you mentioned method methodology you know that's part of it uh, i also believe that firmly believe that it's the amount of time we spend out there you know this is like yeah. we're out there year round, okay? Um, I'm actually shocked personally that we don't have more go on sometimes, uh, based on just the audio alone, let alone some of the other stuff we've 
had happened. Um, so I'm not shocked. Personally, I'm not shocked that you and Jess had sightings. That doesn't shock me whatsoever. Um, there's other people having sightings. Uh, what, what gets me is, okay, well, now we've had these, these sightings, okay, and it's happened within a short period of time. What do we do about those, and how do we go about um, experiencing this uh, more often? You know, I mean, I, I'm sure the viewers and the listeners are going, thinking the same thing. You know, well, you guys are getting sightings, you're getting this and that. So, you know, how do we correct and how do we uh, actually prove it without just a story? You know, right. And, and, well, we, we need we need to bigfoot less because both of those sightings happened when when we weren't actually bigfooting. We just need to go driving around on the road. Yeah. Well, there you go. We'll just I uh, will just go out there and we're not bigfooting. <laughs> you got to put that vibe out. But one of the things yeah, that we I, really and we we've had we talked about this before and we and it's as as you go on researching, you hope that you learn from your past mistakes. And um, we've talked about in the past um, suggesting that everybody uh, has a a dash cam that we, you know, utilize when we're going in and out. If if we were had done that, uh, if we had already implemented that, you know, we may have had a a video recording of your encounter. Because uh, yep. as much time as we're in in and out and and Shane brought it up yesterday that that uh, there's a high you know a, a high percentage of of sightings are road crossings. Why is that? Well, because you know that's it's a clear area that we can actually see. Is I'm sure is one of the reasons. You know, it takes two things to have a bigfoot sighting. It takes a person and a and a bigfoot. So um, one have, thing, yeah, it, you're right. It, go go ahead. One thing I was giving some thought about is that uh, you know um, the forest is their house, you know, and uh, or their living room, however you want to put it. They know we're we're there long before we know they're there. So that their job of evading, if you will, or going around the cursory of our of our areas around us, they they have a hundred percent of the advantage. So my thoughts are is that we got to be predictable in some sense, but then be unpredictable in other sense, and I think that's would may stir their curiosity a little bit where maybe we catch one, hey, what are those guys doing there? Or what are they doing over here? We've been working on some ideas, and I think that they're going to play out pretty good. Uh, Shane and I, and, uh, well, we've all been talking about different ideas. And it's time to deploy. You know, I think well, there's something to be said having manageable a manageable sized group. I think in my mind we've had the most success with small a smaller group of people. Um, not to say that's always been the case, but it seems like having a small group of, of three to four people seems to be, you know, um in my mind, something that seems to kind of repeat itself. Um the kids, having the kids there, I don't know what it is, but when I have kids and horses there, it seems to draw a bit of attention. But I think we're out there year-round. We're the same people going out there year-round. Um, we all have our own unique sound and scent. We've got vocalizations 
you know, from this year that are I, almost identical, like a calling card, so to speak, of vocalizations from years in the past. I mean, you know, there are certain things that are just very unique about each individual. And any time you spend any amount of time, even with wildlife that live in a set area, they become familiar with what is coming in and out of their environment on a regular basis. And so with that in mind, you know, what's to say that there isn't a familiarity between, you know, with us and what's potentially electing to have interactions with us, um, being watched, the sightings, whatever. You know, is there... There's always food for thought on habituation sites, so to speak. You know, is there a building of a, a relationship um, or an understanding or it's it's okay, we're not, you know, we're in their environment and we're not being intrusive and they're familiar with us. And so I think that the more we're there and the more we're there being respectful of the environment and doing things that interest them, I think that we may see have the potential of seeing more things happen because there's a comfort level there. Um, you know, oh, that's just a part of my, that's one of my neighborhood buddies, you know, it's Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, so to speak. It's no big deal. Because there's not, that level of fear is gone. You've lost that because you, you're becoming, you're integrating yourself into into their neighborhood. And so in the what? back of my mind, when we're out there, every single week and like what one summer I think there was only one or two weekends in a matter of three or four months where we weren't there so you're leaving a piece of yourself behind I mean we might not smell ourselves but you know you can guarantee the animals can smell you so who's to say that we haven't the more we go out and the more we try different things the more we're bringing to them a level of comfort that we're in their environment and that they're just not so concerned about being as cautious around us. Yeah, well, I'm sure my, very good point. It's interesting because um, I, I'm, I'm convinced that they they by now know who the individuals that come regularly are. I mean, my dog recognizes mm-hmm. me, so I'm I'm assuming that that we're dealing with an animal that that is at least as smart as the dog. So um, I have no. I mean. I, I believe to me, that that's that, just kind of common sense. I mean, I don't... Right. I mean, it's not, it's not a stretch. To, no, to I mean, that's just kind of you know, integrate. Yeah. If you spend time in an environment, you start to integrate in some way with that environment to some extent. And I've been able to go out in places and, you know, have wildlife approach me when I've spent an amount of time because there's they lose that fear or they gain that comfort level that... You know, you're not going to do anything to them. And, oh, I smell you. I'm familiar with you. Oh, that's your little friend Toto that you've brought with you. You know, he's not going to bite my ankles or whatever. I mean, that's just how animals kind of are. You know, there's they build up that level of comfort to have you in their environment. So they lose their um, their need to put up an alarm and to be concerned because you've not presented yourself as a threat. Well, and also we, we have... I think our behavior is probably peculiar to them to some degree because we do on occasion walk around in the dark and, and uh, you know, without without uh, utilizing light and they probably think that's weird. So, um, and my other strangest uh, experience up in our research area was with Larry 
And it, it was a <laughs> night when Larry and I did something that was unusual behavior. So, and there's a, you know, there's an area near where, in our research area, where we don't generally go at night. Not because, I mean, just because we don't have, hadn't released, just out of habit, we didn't go there. But that, there was a night that Larry and I went, went, uh, East of our our location, and and we're deploying a, a, a recorder with a um, bionic ear kind of recorder, and uh, as we we headed that way, um, I think initially I heard a whistle back from the direction we had come, but but south of us, and then as we went up further, Larry heard a whistle. And from, and, but from another location, um, both to the south of us, one, and uh, and we thought that was weird, you know. But we went off, off into the woods, and we're putting up this, this recorder, and uh, we started to hear, like, a thump. And to me, that's what Larry describes as Jurassic Park night. And, well, to me, it was never as heavy as that, but, but it was definitely... And, and we stopped what we were doing and listened to uh, this percussion, whatever, this thumping sound. And to me, it it reminded me of, of when, uh, you know, a kid's got their bass turned up real loud on the in their stereo in their car. And it, and it was coming from an area where there are some roads. And so we... I mean, it's funny because that's what your brain does. It's like, okay, that's what it is. And we went on to what we were doing, and and uh, we got done, and we walked back to the trail. And for some reason, I said, let's, you know, hey, let's turn our. It was very dark night, and we were wearing headlamps. And and I, I said, well, let, let's turn our lights off and see what happens. Well, we did, and Larry, what happened? Well, the uh, well, I'm gonna call it the boombox sound. <laughs> this real heavy bass is going boom boom but it's it's you could i could feel it it's advancing from the top of the trail towards us we're sitting in the dark it has, and I'm yeah, going, it has gonna, we got it's it's moving towards us and i'm going gonna we gotta get out of here we gotta get out of here and he's like what what the is that i said dude we need to leave so he flips on his light of course i've got my hand on my 45 he he gets the clue. Like, oh, we gotta go. <laughs> yeah, and I and I've been spent a lot of time with Larry in the woods and this area, and I've never <laughs> seen you nervous like that. I mean, you know, and I, but the the weird thing is you have a hunter's sense of of self preservation, and and I I don't <laughs> I've never hunted in my life except for Bigfoot, but uh, the my whole brain was like, what the hell is that? And uh, and we were moving down the trail at a rather brisk pace, and uh, <laughs> it, the this the thumping was was coming from up, up above us on this trail, and uh, the whole time it's like what the heck? And at some point, Larry says to me, "We're being flanked," which I just thought he meant we're being chased. You know, we're being escorted out by whatever's behind us. Uh, later, he Larry explained to me that he actually heard the same percussion sound. From um, basically another the, trail the addition, coming the other. Well, right. This trail is splits and goes. There's a south fork and a, a north fork, and 
there was a profession on our on the trail. It seemed like it was on the trail above us, and then Larry was hearing it also from the other fork of this trail. That basically, initially, this the initial percussion started from where Larry had heard a whistle, and and then uh, the percussion from the south fork of this trail would, would have basically been where I was had heard a, a whistle as we were entering. But we, and advancing towards us. Right. And we We were we literally stopped. being pushed out of the area. And that was the fe- that was the feeling. It was very to me, I mean it, it's funny because I can talk about it and my in my brain I was pretty calm at the time. But I also videotaped myself afterwards and I was freaked out. <laughs> it's like what, Yeah, you what, were one thing uh, we should preface uh, with, with the folks out there is that we went up there to do an experiment by leaving a bunch of, of audio recorders out there without man or without us being around. Right. That was our original intent. Um, and then so we got well, go yeah, ahead. so we got back and, and put that we stopped actually to deploy another recorder. And at that time, we heard it, the the percussion sound um, directly uh, out from us. And it ne- the weird thing to me is it never seemed like it was very that the distance changed much. That it always seemed like it was about the same distance from us. Never saw anything that you know would have been the source of sound. But we hurried our little uh, hineys across to your truck, and and you pushed your alarm thing to get it to beep. <laughs> And interestingly, on on when we listened to the recorder that we had put out in the woods, it there was some movement around that recorder, like within five minutes uh, after we got back to the to your truck. So I mean, what it was, and also know, picked up that boom, that picked up that boom sound and a couple calls. I I duped a uh, recording and uh, put it on a CD. Right. Shane got to hear it. I, mean, I think you heard it too. Yeah, it's, I have heard uh, it. Pretty crazy. Yeah. So I mean, I don't. I have. I still have no idea what it was, but it was very trippy. So I've never heard and anything I, like that in my life. And that was that was the conversation when we got back, and we went actually continued to go and deploy um, a couple more recorders after that, and then we got the heck out of there. <laughs> so, but uh, the. You know, for me, the, these two sightings are kind of different. The one when we, when just a sighting happened when you guys actually camped and stayed in overnight. Yours to me is is like the typical road crossing. You know, it's like that's it's, it's right place, right time, or you know, depending on the person, it could be wrong place, wrong time. But but I mean, in your case, you just happen to be going down an area that you know. And, and we talked about how many times we've all been up and down these these roads and. And I, I have a, I mean, a, a theory, an idea that there's, a, there's some kind of mathematical formula to, um, you have to, you know, that applies to how many, what the population is of known animals. So, you know, you have to see if the population of deer is a hundred or a thousand times that of a bigfoot. You got to see about a thousand deer before you're going to see one bigfoot. Hopefully, you land somewhere, you know, in the middle of that or closer to one. Obviously, it's not a would-be-a-steadfast rule, but you would expect to see 
deer, elk, that kind of thing. A bear are even not that common to see in the in the Oregon Coast Range. You don't see those guys that often. Right. No, I mean, you know, I've had I've got pictures of coyotes coming within I don't know twenty five feet of our tent in camp. I mean, you know, I, I mean, you're talking no, about coyotes. an area that goes from being I know, but I think you know when you think about it, an area that for as remote as it can get very quickly, also still has a fair amount of regular human traffic. So I think the animals and what lives in the in the forest are pretty used to, um, you know, the types of noise that we make. And so I, I just don't think that they're as alarmed as they would be maybe as going into other areas. I kind of theorize that, and again, this is just theory, but given the amount of time that we've all been up there, um, I'm pretty certain they know us as individuals, including the vehicles. I mean, every vehicle has its own resonance frequency, even if the sound of the engines, diesels have different frequencies. You can record it, and it'll be at so many hertz. And if you run another diesel, it's got a different frequency all because of the differences and the variances of the metals it's made. You know, they all got different frequencies. You know, they can pretty much identify who's who. At least that's my my opinion. Well, I, I mean, think. yeah, I mean, you know, dog definitely knows the difference between you and me. I mean, so, again, if we're looking at, you know, the intelligence of a little chihuahua compared to something that may have, a, you know, potentially more capacity for um, some critical thinking skills, you know, uh, it's just really hard to say. It's kind of the sky is the limit, which is what makes it so exciting and so challenging. Right. Um, and, you know, if you think about the different animals that um, diseases can affect, so, you know, let's switch, switch it for a minute. When you look at, you know, historically going back several hundred years, and you hear about all the stories from the Native Americans as well as, um, like, the Inuit Indians up towards Alaska. For them, Bigfoot was, I mean, it's obviously a lore, but it was kind of just something that was. It wasn't something that they questioned. It just was. And when you saw, um, you know, European Americans start to to settle and move, you saw the Native American population suffer significant loss at the introduction of disease. And when you look at, you know, different areas of the world where you have more interaction between humans and primates, I mean, look look at the evolution of HIV and AIDS, um, you know, initially coming from, you know, the primates and the fact that people were eating um, undercooked or not cooked bush meat. Um, and then it's infecting people. So, you know, as a historian, there's a, a, a huge part of me that says, okay, you know, we already have a correlation between the disease processes between um, similar similar species of animals. So if you go out to work at the Primate Research Center, they're going to tell you you have to use precautions when handling some of the primates because what illnesses affect them can potentially affect you. So if you have a, a population of Native Americans who say the Bigfoot just, they're there, they're a regular part of, you know, the landscape, and 
one would assume, enough members that they would regularly have some type of interaction with them. What's to say that the same diseases that didn't affect the Native American population didn't also potentially affect a similar species that, you know, like potentially the Bigfoot, and that they didn't have a similar loss of numbers as people moved from the eastern seaboard west and, of course, in north into Alaska. And that maybe over a period of several hundred years that you start to see um, some recovery of population from being affected by, you know, the introduction of these diseases. And, I mean, I guess for some people that may be a stretch, but I, I just, I, I look at it historically, okay, what affected the Native American population and how similar things in a different regions of the world had, a, you know, that same effect. So there's a part of me that wonders if we if we don't or we aren't at a point where we, are, where we aren't seeing some recovery of population and some increase in growth of population, as well as we're going into areas that you know we haven't, and it just is going to increase the the potential for sightings. I don't know. That's just a thought. But that's, I think that's we're going to have theory. a good year. <laughs> I think we are. Well, I think we're off to a bang. Well, interestingly, when I came home last night, I got on Google Earth and I looked at the location of uh, Larry's encounter, and uh, I was surprised. And I looked at it in relative relative distance to um, other places that we've actually um, camped. And one of the fascinating things to me that that it, that that location that you're citing was uh, about 850 feet from an area where we had some really weird stuff happen uh, last summer when we had quite actually had quite a few people with us. Uh, Retman Mullis was with us. Uh, Greg Razor was out with us. Um, mm-hmm. Tom and Alexis Broadhead were here from Montana with us, and uh, uh, that was. We we actually uh, had a, a bunch of weird stuff happen. Um, Shane's the zipper on Shane's tent was was undone when we came back. Um, and soap. Yeah, and had a weird wet and it was wet all down where it had been unzipped, which was very odd. You know, the so Straw and, piled it, up. and it was, <laughs> yeah, and and both Shane and I heard knocks uh, one morning at. at from different locations at about the same time, so it's very, very odd. And it's in an area where we we feel like there's been that we a lot of uh, we the area we normally camp in um, that a lot of the audio stuff when we've been in camp. In fact, the first night that I ever uh, came up to the area and we had a very active night. Um, the the audio started directly east to where we were, and uh, that that's uh, basically, um, if you go due east from where we normally, our base camp is, uh, you end up very close to where you had your sighting. So, now, you know, we, there, I think there's some map work we need to do where we sit down and, and do some process, some um, apply, like, your your knowledge of, of animal activity and, 
and all our collective knowledge of how animals move and stuff and where things have happened. And, you know, now it's kind of a process of elimination. It's kind of narrowing down the the, the haystack and because uh, the, needle, the, the needle's going to keep moving. So it's just where is... I always wonder when something, you know, when there's a sighting or like your encounter, uh, Larry, where where they're going, where where are they coming from, and where are they going to? You know, I don't think they're just wandering randomly out there. There's a purpose to what they're doing. So, and one of the interesting things is that we discovered yesterday in looking for for tracks, and which uh, we did not find anything that was compelling, super compelling. But we did find a lot of uh, elk tracks down in the area where this this thing had walked down into. So food is one of the, the things that would be compelling for an yeah. animal to be moving towards. So. Yeah, and here's the thing, too, for me personally, is that, you know, going out to this area originally, I was very skeptical about this area. Um, it took time for me to realize that there there may possibly be something going on in this area. You know, uh, it didn't take long, but uh, I was still, you know, and I'm still to this day, uh, you know, very open-minded as to the evidence we collect. But, uh, man, it has so much promise, and I'm very excited that I've had, you know, had the enjoyment of having two team members have sightings. Uh, You know, I've never had a sighting in this area. You know, I, I've been to many areas. You know, Lim, the Olympics. Uh, you know, being involved with the Olympic project, fantastic area. Uh, my sighting occurred up at uh, Mount Hood, um, fantastic area. And the Tillamook area for me, when I went out there, I was like a little skeptical. At, you know, uh, I didn't know the area, uh, but having actually done a lot of research in the area and really investigated the area, and and, and subsequently got a lot of audio and some. W- Strange, strange uh, things happen. Uh, We've had stuff happen. <laughs> oh, I mean, phenomenal stuff happened, really, in my mind. But I almost lost I my dog short. with you one night. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I mean, uh, fantastic stuff. Uh, it's an area that, uh, for me, is it, I don't live too far away. It's a very easy uh, area I can access, and so that's why I spend a lot of time out there. And I have friends and team members that like to go to this area, so it makes it very convenient. But it's an area that is really phenomenal, um, given the history. And I'm talking back to uh, Native Americans. I've done my research on this area. I wanted to get the ins and outs of this area. And, you know, uh, it has an extraordinary amount of history uh, in this area, even, like I said, with the Native Americans and stuff, but even recent history and constant stuff going on there. Uh, reports coming in from a lot of individuals. Uh, so there's just and so much going on that I'm excited there, for the new year because I think we're really starting to get a, a focus on, on what we should be doing and how we should be doing it. Um, many people will disagree. Some will say, you're wrong. What, I, I don't care at this point. I'm looking at the future, and I'm very excited about it because I think uh, we're doing great things. We have the right people involved. And we're getting results. Um, that's just my opinion, but so be it. No, you know, well, no, I think you're really right. And, and I think what's what's nice is that our our core group is not 
so large um, that we have as many challenges as other groups have had to deal with. Um, I think we've been really thoughtful. We have a group with some really fabulous, varied um, background that really makes us collaborate, I think, well together. Um, and that there is also a level of trust and understanding that goes into this because we are going to make mistakes as we go. I mean, there's no doubt. It's, there's, there's no book written on how to do this. But that we know each other well enough to know that when something pings on our radar, you know, it, it really bears looking into. And I don't have to worry when I go out that, you know, of other other areas or other people have experienced, um, you know, I think our intent is is in the right place. You know, we're not here for fame. We're not here for fortune. Um, we're here for, for the experience and we're here for the science and we're here to learn. And, um, you know, so I think that makes our group really, really unique. Um, and I think because of it, we just have so many possibilities of of where we're going to go and potentially take this. And, you know, that I don't have to worry about people going out and trying to set, set, up, set evidence up or, you know, I don't feel like I have to prove my integrity to my group because we just have a level of trust with each other that I just don't think all groups have. And so I think we're really, really fortunate and really blessed. I um, think we all just enjoy each other's company. So that's a, that's yeah. a plus right there. Well, well, there's nothing Larry, better than when, going when out in the woods for a weekend with people you like. There you go. Yeah, Larry, you know, you, you cook like a, a madman, so you had me at, you know, oh, you're not eating those cliff bars, you're eating steak, <laughs> lobster. So, if, and I still have said, I've said it many times, if, any, if anybody listening ever gets a chance to go Bigfooting with Larry Turner, I highly suggest that you take it up. Uh, the cuisine is fantastic. So, um, <laughs> but, but I mean, it's, the thing it's, is, one it's of, sad we eat my, better my, out than we do my, when we're home. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because for me, when when I heard first that Jess that you had an encounter, first I I think I'm stoked because um, you know a lot of our stuff up until then a lot was mostly audio stuff, and you hope that things progress to where um, the contact eventually that you can confirm that what you're dealing with is, and what you've been doing has some merit. Otherwise, you know, you're chasing ghosts, per se. But And right. the second part was I was very jealous that you have the... <laughs> you had a sighting and I did not. So, but, well, uh, I mean, it, it, you know, it was just one of those things that I wasn't expecting. it. I wasn't out big footing at that given moment. You know, I was in camp with the girls. And the thing that's really important, it's not just my sighting. Is there are two other people who are with me who mm-hmm. also saw what I saw and, you know, can kind Which of give awesome. their own I mean, description of. And so yeah. that, I mean, that that's, to me yeah. is it, important that there's there was more than one person there. But it just makes me more um, more excited to go to go back out and to spend more time. And it really, you know, makes me want to find better ways of doing what we're doing so we can get the kind of results that we hope to and have look at that, you know, those things that we're finding, you know, credibly. And so everything that we do, um, we we put a lot more thought into it than people realize. 
What Justin said is that she saw two grown men crying when we found out that she saw one. <laughs> well, I mean, Larry, I think Larry and Chris saw me in, in an extreme stupid moment. I mean, I think I'm still kind of embarrassed at how much rambling I do because it's just still just real. I mean, I'm still trying to I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it because it was not the normal experience. But yeah, Larry knows yeah. me well enough. When he came into camp and he's like, you know, what's up, Mama? And I can't even articulate why. <laughs> Did you find any elk? <laughs> she, the way she was acting was like, I saw it. I go, you mean that elk ran by you? <laughs> and then uh, she goes, no, no, no. And then, you know, after a few seconds, she said that she saw a Bigfoot. I went, you got to be kidding me. No, not when me and Chris are down the bottom of the other canyon. <laughs> yeah, you just can't put that, your words around but, it. But the, one of the things that was great about that encounter was there was corroboration. There was multiple witnesses. I mean, that's when you have a, a sighting, short of, of getting, you know, HD clear footage, um, having, a, yeah. having multiple witnesses is, is the next best thing. I mean, that's, you know. Unless people right. will come I mean, down and lay right. lay on a, on the flatbed of your truck and say, "Drive me in to have some DNA," you know. Well, here's one of my uh, one of my relatives died recently. Here's some bones. Right, right. I'm and trying to use like my truck as a hair sample stuff. collector. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that I mean, is, I think we're getting that, there. That's but yeah. Yeah. But that is one of the other more compelling things that have happened in the group, and I I forget about that sometimes. Is that you got a interesting. <laughs> Um, impression on your pickup truck one one night oh, yeah. when you're out there. Yeah. So we'll post that up too because it, it I'll let people look at it yeah. and make their own own decision but but it looks pretty cool if you um, know what you're looking at. So well, that was a, that... let me let me cut in here real quick. I just want to say this that uh uh even though uh, I will say this honestly, even though uh you know Larry's reported the sighting and 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 Jess has reported a sighting, and, and Gunner, I think you would agree because you've not had a sighting period, let alone in the Tillamook area. That we love our friends and we love, everything, but we're you know um, we're not all uh, jumping in and going, oh Sasquatch, Sasquatch. Okay, right. there's always the element in our minds, you know, even for my sighting. I've had shoot, I've had, I know what I saw. I know what Jess, she knows what she saw, and Larry knows what he saw. There's always that, um, no matter what you do, there's always that skepticism there. And that's important, I think. And it's nothing, it's not doing anybody any disservice. It's we want no. to get to the bottom of things and want to really uh, fathom what people are seeing. I'm not down what anybody saw, uh, just as much you know, as, you know, you know what I'm saying? But, uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, don't think, is, I don't think, you know, Shane, that people realize how critical we are um, as a group exactly. towards each other. And, for example, you know, when this happened, when I had my sighting, there were the people there that were privy to it. And we let you and Gunnar know almost right away because of the amount of time that we, you know, that our little groups have spent together. And the next step after we did the recreation, I mean, people really need to understand that, that one, I needed to take two or three days just to try and mm-hmm, let yeah. things soak in because I... I still struggle with articulating it. But exactly. then we we had people um, 
uh, Greg Razor, who's law enforcement, um, and then um, David Ellis from Olympic Project, two people that I respect and trust, but have yeah. significant skill in um, analyzing and, I don't want to say interrogating, but yes, Greg probably does interrogate <laughs> people, um, So who are trained to interview people, each individually over a period of, I think, a week and a half, um, took different moments to stop and interrogate me and to go right. through things and to ask me questions. Um, and, and then our group, when we finally met and talked about it, it was the same way. I mean, it wasn't just uh, Bigfoot. It was like something happened with Jess. Let's ask her some questions and let's be really, really critical of what it was, almost to the point where you end up feeling defensive because you know that you can't ever prove what it is you saw. You're not really sure what you saw, but you're pretty certain that um, what you saw reflects what most people think of as a Bigfoot. And so before we even talked about this publicly, there's been so much personal scrutiny and, and analyzing as much as we can possibly do before we even come forward with, hey, I have a story. Because it really opens you up to to a lot, you know, a lot of disbelief, a lot of hoaxing, a lot of you're, you're making it up or whatever, or misidentification. So people need to understand just because something happens with one of our group members and we trust and have faith in them doesn't mean that we don't put them through the ringer trying to analyze these experiences or analyze the data that we collect. Um, right. And we don't just go through it ourselves. We send it out to other people, sometimes not even in the Bigfoot world, to have them go through and vet these things or to interpret the data or to um, interrogate one of our group members. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, really the thing, of... Yeah, I was going to say, the thing is, I think uh, our team members interrogate those that, you know, that, you know, like you guys, the most because we are, uh, the thing about the group is that we are so about the evidence and so about getting to the facts that uh, your interrogation uh, is going to be hardcore when it comes to other team members. It, you know, I don't want people to come away from the show going, oh, well, you know, they're all in the group together and they're going to believe anything. No, far from it. I'm sorry. No. I mean, it, it no, could be I mean, my wife or, you know, whatever. <laughs> the thing is, let's, we're about the facts. Let's call it interviewing. <laughs> well, I, I like interviewing. Your inter it, it is interviewing, but it is a bit of interrogation, uh, not like uh, waterboarding. Trust me. No waterboarding. I do remember there was a bright light. There was a bright light. You will tell us what you know. Short of, short, short of Larry's waterboarding of me, no, short of really, I mean, at the end of all these interviews and interrogations and questions and how could we have done this better or what can we do better next time, do you end up almost, I mean, I hit a point where I don't think I talked about it again for maybe till January or February because you, it's so intrusive and everything about it is so overanalyzed that it actually starts to take away from from the experience itself. And, and so... I mean, you almost end up going back to a position of being very guarded again. Like, I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm not going to raise my hand and say, hey, I saw something. Because it is, it's really hard on you. It's hard enough just trying to rationalize the experience and then to be, quote, unquote, interrogated. And then you really draw back in on yourself going, oh, wow, 
because it's not it's not an easy experience to have even if you didn't mm-hmm. feel threatened because right. of everything you have to go through. And so, um, you know, I think we are more critical of each other and we hold ourselves and our group members to a significantly higher standard, um, especially when it comes because, to accounting. You know, uh, first thing I did was contact both Shane and Gunner. And then after talking to them, I also spoke with Dave, uh, I spoke with Greg for like an, two hours and then uh, also David. Mhm. Yeah. So the, we have yeah, these little the, bright hot lights shining on us. Where were you? You know, the, the whole nine yards. You know, we make sure we we uh, our group makes we sure don't, we get we don't ex- We yeah. And the idea is to to not accept things out of hand. And but but both the um, Jesses and there's two things going on. There's a human experience. You know that, and the, everybody has to process that experience their own way. And then there's the, the processing of evidence and the the, uh-huh. the anecdotal story as a piece of the puzzle to solving the mystery. So, and you do have to balance that because you can't just, you know, you got to let people split so again. And, and and it is kind of a different the way that Larry and and you felt about talking about it immediately is very different. So, you know, that's. Right. Can I, again, you know, yeah, we we got about a minute and a half left, so um, I'd like to take a second and thank you guys both for coming and and sharing your stories, perhaps. Because, like I said, it's, it isn't an easy thing to do, and people want to question what you know your motives and and your experience, and and it's a very personal thing, so. Um, again, and I want to thank you both, and, and I'm, I'm excited to get back out in the woods this year and, and hit it hard again, uh, because uh, and that I felt that when when you had your encounter, Jess, and and Larry having another one in fairly close proximity um, reinvigorates me, and I'm, as I'm sure it does the rest of the rest of us. So uh, we're excited to get back out in and uh, and. Uh, have that experience and uh, start developing things and working on things to to uh, improve our results and our research. And uh, I look forward to being out in the woods with you guys again very soon. So uh, thanks, guys. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks for Glad having us. Come on. <laughs> so for for uh, Shane Corson and our guest. Jess Southern and Larry Turner. This is Gunnar Monson and from Monster X. Have a happy Valentine's Day today uh, when you'll be listening to this, and uh, we'll catch you next week with another great episode of Monster X Radio. Good night.